Hey everyone, technically you're getting two days in history today because we're running two episodes from the History Vault. You'll also hear two hosts, me and Tracy V. Wilson. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson, and it's October 16th. On this day in 1968, Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists in protest on the winner's podium at the Olympic Games in Mexico City. In the lead-up to these games, Harry Edwards had started an organization called the Olympic Project for Human Rights. Harry Edwards had been a discus thrower, and when this happened, he was working as a sociology professor. This organization called for things like more Black coaches and restoring Muhammad Ali's heavyweight title. It also called for banning South Africa and Rhodesia from the Olympic Games. Both South Africa and Rhodesia had minority white governments and were operating in a state of apartheid. They also called for the replacement of International Olympic Committee President Avery Brundage, who had been repeatedly accused of racism and anti-Semitism. There were threats to boycott the Olympic Games if these demands weren't met. And some athletes did boycott the Games, but others participated. And that year in Mexico City, in the 200-meter race, American Tommy Smith won the gold, Australian Peter Norman won the silver, and American John Carlos won the bronze. So Smith and Carlos had helped organize the Olympic Project for Human Rights. They were students of Harry Edwards. And when they went to the podium to receive their medals, Smith and Carlos had their shoes off and they were wearing black socks. Each of them wore one black glove. Smith also wore a scarf and Carlos wore beads. And when the national anthem was playing, they raised their fist in a black power salute and bowed their heads. The black socks were there to symbolize black poverty and the scarf and the beads were to represent the victims of lynching. When you look at pictures of this moment, Peter Norman, the Australian athlete who won the silver, looks almost like a bystander, but he wasn't at all a bystander. He was standing with them in solidarity. He was wearing a badge from the Olympic Project for Human Rights. And in addition to supporting Smith and Carlos's protest that day, Norman was doing this to oppose racism and racist government policies in Australia, where he was from. There is some debate about whose idea this protest was, including between Smith and Carlos. But it was Norman who suggested that the two men each wear one of the same pair of gloves when one of them realized that he had forgotten his. Altogether, this was a protest by three men against segregation, discrimination, and racism. And their actions were immediately heavily criticized. Many people in the crowd immediately started jeering as soon as they realized what was happening. Smith and Carlos were ejected from the games. They were suspended from the U.S. Olympic team. They were blacklisted from the sport once they got home. They got death threats. In the words of Brundage of the IOC, quote, the action of these Negroes was an insult to the Mexican hosts and a disgrace to the United States. This was at a time before Olympic athletes were generally invited to visit the White House, but public relations consultant Robert McElwain had suggested that maybe all the American medalists, all of them, should be invited, and that was something that was ultimately declined. Also, after returning home, Smith and Carlos were tracked by the FBI. Peter Norman faced huge backlash at home as well. 
He was reportedly kept out of the 1972 Olympics in Munich for having participated in this protest. He was ostracized from the sport at home, and he never returned to it. When he died in 2006, Carlos and Smith were among his pallbearers. The Australian government apologized for the treatment that Norman received in 2012. Today, there is a statue of this moment in the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., which shows Smith and Norman and Carlos as they were on the podium that day. Thanks very much to Tari Harrison for audio work in this podcast. And you can subscribe to the Stay in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. You can tune in tomorrow for an unexpected flood. Hi, everyone. I'm Eves. Welcome to This Day in History class, a podcast for folks who can never have enough history knowledge. The day was October 16, 1834. Much of the Palace of Westminster, the home of the British Parliament, was destroyed in a fire. In medieval times, the Palace of Westminster was the main royal residence in London, and it housed the law courts and government departments. By the 1800s, the complex had been expanded and renovated so much that it had become a winding mix of passages, walls, staircases, and buildings. Members of Parliament have been raising concerns about the state of their accommodations for a while. So though the fire on October 16, 1834 was accidental, conditions in the complex were ripe for a disaster. Wooden tally sticks were used as a form of tax receipt until 1826, when an act prohibiting the use of tallies for record went into force. But it took years for the system to be overhauled. By 1834, there were still tallies that needed to be thrown away. The Exchequer, a government department responsible for collecting and managing taxes and revenues, was tasked with getting rid of two carts full of tally sticks. The clerk of works decided to have them burned, unsupervised, in underfloor stoves in the basement of the House of Lords. So workers followed his orders and did just that. People who visited the House of Lords that day noticed how hot the floor was and that smoke was rising from it. But the housekeeper and the clerk of works ignored the warnings. The premises were closed around 5 p.m. Around an hour later, a doorkeeper's wife announced that the House of Lords was on fire. Not long after it was discovered, a fireball exploded out of the building. The fire attracted a lot of attention. Crowds of spectators gathered, and many of them painted and sketched the scene. Parish engines, insurance companies, and the private London fire engine establishment worked to put out the blaze. Volunteers, including MPs and lords, also staffed water pumps throughout the night. By the time the fire was under control, Westminster Hall, the Undercroft Chapel of St. Mary, the Jewel Tower, the Chapter House of St. Stephen's, and part of the cloisters were saved. But the House of Commons and the House of Lords were destroyed, along with most other buildings in the complex. After the fire, people capitalized on the buzz surrounding the event by selling cheap prints and creating souvenirs from stone, lead, and wood taken from the site. The damage to the palace was estimated at 2 million pounds. 
nobody was prosecuted for causing the fire and destruction of the buildings, but a public inquiry did suggest the fire was a result of negligence. A commission was formed to look into the loss of parliamentary records. It made recommendations that led to the creation of the Public Record Office, which later became the National Archives. Architect Charles Berry won a government competition to design a new palace. He and Augustus Pugin developed a new complex that included the surviving structures. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Spend some of your daily social media time with us at T-D-I-H-C podcast. You can also email us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.